Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. More bother for Backhurst or TEDG. Kevin Backhurst insists that he will not resign as pressure mounts over exit payments. I stand entirely by what I've done about trying to move the organisation forward with a new leadership team and make payments which are in the best interest and the best value for RTE. Alexei Navalny's widow, Yulia, accuses Vladimir Putin of killing her husband as the former Russian opposition leader's death continues to cause outrage across the globe. I think her presence here is significant because what has happened reminds us all of the repressive uh, and oppressive uh, nature of the regime in the Russian Federation. And Israel threatens a ground assault in Rafah if hostages are not released by Ramadan. How will the international community respond? In a bruising few days for RTE Director General Kevin Backer says controversy arose over exit payments made to senior executives with the broadcaster. After a meeting with the media minister today, Mr Backerst insisted that he was committed to maximum transparency in relation to the payments, but RTE has to respect the law. Well, joining me to discuss this further is Fine Gael Senator Martin Conway, Business Post journalist Sarah McGuinness and Employment Law Solicitor Kieran Ahern. And joining us down the line tonight is former RTE broadcaster Kieran Malouli. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Sarah, the RTE Director General is under considerable pressure over payments at the National Broadcaster in the midst of a payment scandal now over what exit deals were done for departing executives. What emerged from the meeting with the Media Minister Catherine Martin this afternoon? Well, both Kevin Backhurst and Catherine Martin said that it was a very long and constructive meeting, but Kevin Backhurst did come out of it slightly worse for wear by the looks of things. Um, he was on drive time and got quite the grilling from Sarah McInerney. And basically coming out of it, Catherine Martin said that she understands that RT executives have to respect the law and that they have to respect the privacy of RTE staff. But in a similar vein, she said that basically what has happened just really isn't good enough. And this time around, it does have to be noted that in the case of Brita O'Keefe, where she left with the guts of half a million euro, that was on D Forbes, that was on Brita O'Keefe. This is on Kevin Backhurst. His name was above the door when Ronan Coveney resigned and when he left with a seismic exit package, which has been reported to be worth about 200,000 euro. That's Rory um, Coveney's. Rory Coveney, excuse me, yes. So... Um, Kevin Backer's name is above the door on this occasion and Catherine Martin basically said that more transparency is needed. She said that she would um, advise against confidentiality clauses and future agreements between departing or to ease senior staff 
and the executive board. She said that all the executive board must sign off on all exit packages, which we know didn't happen in the case of Breed O'Keefe. Um, and basically, she kind of said that she would actually look to RTE to maybe revisit the confidentiality agreements that it already has in place, um, most notably with Richard Collins, the former CFO, who resigned in October in the height of the payment scandal. So, yeah, it was a really not a great day for Kevin Backers or Shuni Rahalik, the RTE board chair. OK, so what we're seeing, Martin Conway, is Catherine Martin asking for a number of things to consider all possible options to bring further clarity and transparency. Transparency, But in, what's she asking for actually realistic? To go back over confidentiality <clears throat> clauses? <clears throat> well, it is realistic because it's in the public interest at this stage. Uh, to be quite frank about it, I agree with Sarah. Um, Kevin Backhouse has not had a good weekend. Uh, the drip feeding of information, going back to the media committee last Wednesday and right through the weekend, uh, has been very highly damaging for RTE. Um, quite frankly, he should never have agreed a, uh, as part of the mediation with Mr Collins uh, to have a confidentiality agreement. Given the backdrop at the time of the public fury, uh, the fact that RTE were in before the PSE and the media committee, uh, it was very, very poor judgment on Kevin Backhart's part to actually agree uh, a confidentiality uh, agreement with Mr Collins. He should have said, that's a red line, there's no confidentiality agreement, we have to be transparent and upfront. So I think there was a serious error of judgment on Kevin Backhart Backhouse part uh, uh, to have entered into that. And mm. I suppose given the fact that it was under questioning from me uh, last July at the media committee where um, Breed O'Keefe uh, blurted out that she had got um, a severance package at the time, which then led to questions being asked by unions uh, to discover that essentially there was a, a, a specific arrangement put in place for her. Um, also, I think it was quite remarkable uh, that uh, when Alan Dillon, my colleague, was questioning Kevin Backhouse initially, he wouldn't uh, um, uh, disclose the figure. Then yeah. he did. But what I can't understand is, what right. is the difference between uh, the, uh, disclosing the figure for Breed O'Keefe and not disclosing the figure for Rory Coveney? Well, I think what we heard from Kevin Backhouse on that particular question was that Breed O'Keefe had voluntarily given information about the package that she received upon her departure. Look, sure. I just want to bring in the perspective of an employment uh, lawyer in all of this. Uh, Kieran. thank you for joining us on the programme. Uh, what we heard today um, from Kevin Backhurst when he said, you know, we, we will push transparency. I have uh, spoken to external lawyers this morning about how far we can push transparency, what we can and we can't say. They've gone away. They're going to have a look at this. But realistically, he has had to defend um, the deal that he cut with Rory Coveney and with others. Um, was he was he right to do that deal? Are confidentiality agreements standard place in, in such departures? Short answer, yes, absolutely. They are bog standard in almost every senior executive <laughs> departure in, in a situation like this. We have a really robust system of employment law rights in this country under the Unfair Dismissals Act. Any dismissal by an employer is automatically presumed to be unfair until the employer proves otherwise. So process is really important in Irish employment law. And if you want to short-circuit someone's you know, right to, to essentially fight for their job within an organisation to be, you know, if, this, if there were performance-related reasons or misconduct-related reasons for getting someone out of an organisation, you would be expected to put them through a process. If you want to short-circuit that process, then this is how these type of severance agreements 
are arranged. There are grown-up conversations between senior people in organisations where they, they agree on a figure and they say, listen, we could do this the easy way or the hard way. Let's see if we can do it the easy way. Okay, so this, this is par for the course and there's nothing unusual in this. When it's the national broadcaster, does that make a difference? If this is in you know, private organisations, um, that it's, it's you know, bog standard. But in the case where, I suppose, essentially people will say this is public money, does that make any difference to the argument to reveal um, these clauses or these exit deals or, in fact, not have them in place in the first place? Well, your employment rights don't differ depending on whether you're in the public sector or the private sector. Um, and so all the same employment laws will, will apply to you. It's a matter for an employer as to whether they want to push for a confidentiality clause in an agreement. And in my experience, it's mo most times it's the employer that seeks the confidentiality in a situation like this. And there can be very good reasons for that. You know, for instance, first of all, is it really anyone's business what someone gets paid in a situation like this uh, in the in the in the private sector certainly um, and then there are also internal reasons why an employer might want, not want to advertise to the rest of its employees exactly what some other employee received as an exit payment all right okay uh, but bigger political reasons perhaps as we've been her hearing from martin there as to why people may be interested to know what deals were cut i want to bring kieran maluli in at this point um kieran you've been listening to that um you were the subject of, of uh, an exit agreement because you took voluntary redundancy at RTE, didn't you? It is sensitive for some and it's an arduous process um, for many. What do you think about what happened here? I think the problem for uh, Kevin Backhurst and RTE is the difference between the two voluntary redundancy schemes, Claire. I went out in the 2021 scheme. Um, a lot of the previous uh, people, including the chief financial officer, went out in the 2017 scheme. We learned from the McCann report that there were no irregularities in the 2021 scheme in that people's had jobs uh, positions suppressed and uh, they, they were compensated in, li in line with their years of service. We learned from the other, from the McCann report, that the 2017 was very difficult very different, uh, that Breda O'Keefe was one of those people whose package was approved by nobody apart from the Director General, never went to an executive in the company and caused difficulties. And that's the problem. That's a lingering problem still in the RT staff situation. Because I was talking to some people today who were saying that, you know, we thought we knew the extent of irregularities up to last Thursday or Friday. We thought the worst was out last summer. Remember that day when the 10th of July, when Kevin Backhurst uh, came, came out and told us he was standing down the executive and uh, turned it ironically to, to Ryan Tuberty and his agent and said he wanted to see absolute transparency. Uh, well, a lot of the staff in RTE and I suppose a lot of the licensed pair as well thought they had heard uh, most of what went on. But there's still a real fear there and a real concern that they haven't, that there are yet are, there, there are more announcements to come, more executives that, di that disappeared from the organisation over the course of the last eight or nine years. And they fear that this drip, drip position will continue to go oh, on. Right. And many of them believe that Kevin Backhurst doesn't even know the details of some of the people that left. But let's uh, talk about, you know, confidentiality clauses. I mean, was your settlement confidential? No, there was no confidentiality clause to it. And in fact, uh, I, I didn't, didn't take long to reveal it on local radio here about two weeks ago. I was, I was asked, there was a two-year cap 
uh, on on two 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 salary uh, cap, I should say, in terms of the the for me and that uh, for an RT correspondent, I can tell you they're not paid any place near two hundred and fifty thousand euro. They're not paid one hundred thousand euro. So it's very easy to work out what I was paid in terms of my package. The difficulty for my colleagues is when they hear that Brito O'Keefe may have been paid four hundred and fifty thousand euro. That uh, you know the the the, the Coveney payout may have been may have been two hundred thousand euro. And that's causing concerns and causing real uncertainty among staff. Remember, up to 40 people and staff applied for that package, didn't get it. Uh, and, and, you know, that's why there's so much unease in there at the moment and so much general concern among the general public. We were supposed to be starting again with Kevin Backhurst. He hasn't had a good start. We learned today that Shu and Nirahali said she was she didn't have a role in in, in actually endorsing the payments that went out to the CFO and, and to Rory uh, Coveney. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's a weakness in the situation. Sure, in any community group in the country tonight, Claire, who talks to you, in any community group, they would say two of three people on the executive must be in charge of the checkbook, must be in charge of the accounts. Two or three must approve the payments. This does not seem to okay. be happening in RTE. We All right. don't seem to have the chairperson of the board signing off on key arrangements. All right. Okay, coming back to then uh, transparency and good governance again, uh, Martin. I mean, what do you see actually coming from this? Like we were, we were referring there to Alan Dillon um, of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, chair of the, of the party, saying RTE needs to publish Uh, the names of every senior executive who received an exit package since 2016 and the amount they received. I mean, we're hearing from Kieran Ahern tonight that that's simply, you know, you're you're going back, I suppose, from years ago, but also that there's confidential arrangements in place that are good for both the employee and the employer in question. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I I, I hear what Kieran is saying and I do uh, uh, to a large extent agree. Uh, But I also welcome the fact that um, Kevin Backhurst is seeking uh, alternative independent legal advice on how much uh, uh, information he can make available and put into the public domain. And of course, it is uh, free for Kevin Backhurst to engage with a lot of these executives and uh, get them to waive their right of, con- uh, of confidentiality uh, in order to protect the future of RTE. And I'm sure there's a lot of them out there who would be uh, quite happy t- to make the information available. So I would call on any of those executives um, who uh, received packages going back to 2016 uh, to actually voluntarily uh, make the information available in the public interest. Right. Because this is in the public interest. This is our national broadcaster okay. that's getting millions of euros of uh, taxpayers' money and licence fee money on an annual basis. And you know, I think it is different mm. and it is important that there's transparency. All right. Uh, Sarah, though, you know, was Kevin Backhurst in his defence in a lose-lose situation. Let someone go with no payout and you'll end up, as he said, in front of the Workplace Relations Commission uh, for wrongful dismissal, but, but pay them and you're facing the ire of politicians and the public. Of course. And also there is the financial aspect of that as well. Like he said, if we didn't pay Rory Coveney and then he decided to take a case against us, we could be losing RTE more money in a sense that, like, he he literally said, like, Rory Coveney could have taken us to the Work Relations Commission and then got double what we actually had paid him. So there is that argument in a sense. It is is a bit of a lose-lose situation. I don't really know how you... I don't really know how he's going to get his way out of this one. He also is making the point, I'm repeatedly making the point, that the role of director of strategy was absorbed by Adrian Lynch. So that role doesn't exist anymore. Whatever Roy Coveney was getting in the way of a salary, which is estimated to be about €200,000, that's not a payment anymore. So he's saying, technically, if we look at the year, mm-hmm. we're up 
were up in money. So that there were savings made in that regard as well as savings from, I don't know, potential, um, you know, going through the courts um, on... Uh, potentially on, you know, disgruntled employers' uh, behalf. Um, I wonder, though, with this, Kieran, when, you know, Kevin Backer said, look, I'm going to, we're going to talk to lawyers and we're going to see how we can extend transparency. I mean, is he, is he limited in actually what he can do? Well, the horse has really bolted at this stage in terms of any previous executives. You will, as Martin said, you would need to rely on these individuals waiving their right to privacy um, because there are binding, as, as far as we're aware, there are binding confidenti confidentiality terms in, in, involved in all of these agreements that these people have taken as part of their severance packages. So to to unilaterally, for RTE to unilaterally disclose the names and figures involved would be a serious breach of someone's privacy and they could sue for that. They could sue for breach of contract, they could sue for, for damages relating whatever may happen from someone's um, privacy being breached, they could, they could sue for that. The Data Protection Commission mm. may have something to say about it, I'm sure the, the ICCL would, would also. Kevin, you want to come in, Mark? Yeah, Kevin Backhurst is in a spot of bother here and a serious spot of bother. While we all wish him well and I, we all felt that he made a very good start last year, uh, I don't know how he's going to chart his way through this, but he has a serious job of work to do to convince the public because I think they're moving away from him very fast. And I want to be fair to him and I want to wish him well, but I think we Is that need... political pressure, though, Martin? I mean, you're hearing it a lot from, from your own party over mm -hmm. the weekend when, you know, the statement was disclosed about, um, about, about exit deals and the, the pressure that he says he's under, that, like, legally... You know, he can't, re he can't reveal these details. Well, he's under political pressure because RT was a mess and he has now created another mess. And that mess needs to be cleaned up and it needs to be cleaned up fairly rapidly. And that can only happen mm. by disclosing as much information as possible so as we have accountability and at least the public know what happened and that they can move on from it. All right. Um, Kieran Mullooly, to bring you back in, in here on this... Um, is Kevin Backer's judgment being called into question? I mean, he was, um, I haven't heard many political calls for it, but he was asked for a, a journalist about whether he should resign and he categorically says no, that he has a job of work to do. Um, what's the feeling um, among staff in RTE um, and I suppose among former staff like yourself? What's your sense of it? I think there's huge uh, frustration within RTE. Remember, Claire, Kevin Backhurst and the, and the board of the company are looking for four to 500 redundancies over the course of the next 12 months, uh, albeit voluntarily at this stage. So uh, for many of those people are listening today of talk on all redundancy payments being capped going forward, uh, regardless of how many years they work in the company. Now, what do they think when they hear of the payments made to Brito, Keefe and to Rory Coveney and, and who, who else that we haven't heard of? So there's frustration there. But I think one other big factor in this is your, your, your people at home watching tonight who may consider buying a license a license in the next number of weeks and months. This is becoming increasingly difficult. It's a bigger nightmare. We're going to have to move quickly to the state payment for RT if, the, if this organisation is going to survive in the long term. 40 million from the government to keep it floating. You could hear the frustration and some of the government ministers today. Mm -hmm. And you can you can tell that the public is not going to come forward willingly to any arrangement until we have clarity and transparency. Despite the legal agreements and despite what's happened, uh, Kevin Buckhurst has a very difficult job in his hand. He's going to have to speak to staff first and foremostly and explain to them what was involved in terms of compensation payments or contracts, or at least sit down with them and explain, perhaps you should have done that before we heard 
the other way in front of the Oireachtas Committee last week. All right. Um, and Kieran Hearn, to bring you in, I suppose, on that uh, idea that, that was flagged with Catherine Martin today about capping, uh, potentially capping mm. payments um, on departure. I mean, w will that float? Can it? Can, can an employer say, look, this, these are the terms. It might not have been what has gone before, but this is what's in place now and this is what you'll have to accept. Well, it depends of the reasons for which you're exiting someone. So it's, it's relatively easy to do that within a collective redundancy process where you say, this is the package. There are, there are, there are laws that, that allow employers to let employees go for reasons of redundancy. But we weren't, for, for the, the, the large executive payments, we're not necessarily talking about roles that are redundant. You're, ex you're exiting them because they've become an inconvenience to the organisation, because they're not the right fit anymore, because things have changed uh, within the organisation and publicly, and there was pressure to clean house at the top of the organisation. Now, that's not... It's a resignation versus a redundancy. A resignation, but it, it, it seems like it was a a, a, an agreed resignation. So if an organisation wants to... Uh, wants to t tell people in advance this is as far as we're going to negotiate and that's and no further um, remember all of these again exits at the top of the organization they're negotiated exits you're relying on an employee to to accept mm. the package on offer now they may well do so because the awards are capped at the WRC and you'd want to make sure that you're bargaining hard with your employees in a situation like this because the maximum award at the WRC is two years pay based on your loss of earnings so if you're giving someone compensation for not taking a case and buying off the risk of that case you want to make sure as an employer though you're you're getting a discount on what they would ultimately win if they were successful, if they were successful at the WRC. Okay. And that's a big if. So potentially a lot of, um, you know, legal challenges here for Kevin Backhurst as he tries to navigate his way through this. Sarah, what's critical in the months ahead to ensure, well, he weathers this storm, but also that um, I suppose we get, we get more clarity, we get the promised uh, transparency here and good governance. Of course, and like like any political issue at this time, this is all set on the backdrop of an election year. And that will be playing in the back of the coalition's minds. So anyone who's on PAC, anyone who is on the media committee, with every hearing they have, this is kind of a chance to showcase that they are on the taxpayer's side and that they want answers just as much as the voters do. And similarly, I don't think this issue can be discussed without thinking about how RTE is going to be funded moving forward, the TV licence reform, whatever that might look like, that is still very much on the table. Michal Martin said yesterday that he hopes that there will be a framework in place by the summer recess. If you look at what the coalition has to achieve between now and the summer, they have a lot on their plate. And Sinn Féin were straight out, they were straight in there last week tabling their bill to completely abolish the TV licence to directly fund RTE to give the post office a couple of million while they were at it. Michal Martin has outright said no exchequer funding. Malcolm McGrath of the same they opinion. Can't decide, they can't make up their minds. The they house want to push this one out, Martin. Yeah, well, look, at, uh, what Sinn Féin were proposing last week was to give uh, right. a, a, an amnesty, essentially a waiver to anyone who hadn't yeah, paid but it. The, but it also, gave, uh, it also did give government a reason to, say, to push it out. Well, Further. look, I mean, it's my view and has been my view for a long time that it should be a household charge. 
uh, because we're in a world now where not everyone is watching television through a television. They're watching it through. Okay. Um, you can add that to the list of options, yeah, I yeah, suppose, that yeah. have been presented. Um, and ultimately, from uh, members of political parties in government. Yeah. And, we, and ultimately, it is going to be a political decision. I sincerely hope that the government make the decision before the election, so as okay. RT know where they stand in terms of their funding, and we can move on from this. Right. And uh, ultimately, that we have a quality public service broadcaster in this country. All right. Well, we'll, we'll remind you of that one. Uh, my thanks. To Martin Conway, to Kieran O'Hearn, and to Kieran Malouli. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. McGuinness is staying on with me to discuss the fallout from the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. And before we go to the break, we just want to take this opportunity to pay tribute to Irish Times journalist Michael O'Regan, who passed away over the weekend. Michael was a regular on The Tonight Show. He will be missed by all, both in front and behind the camera. We on The Tonight Show extend our sympathies to his family at this sad time. Welcome back. Days after the death of Alexei Navalny in a remote Arctic prison, details about what happened to the Russian opposition leader remain scarce. Official Russian accounts cite sudden death syndrome as the cause of death, while Navalny's widow, Yulia, has accused Vladimir Putin of killing her husband. Business Post Sarah McGuinness has stayed on with me and she's joined by University of Oxford law lecturer Dr Jennifer Cassidy and down the line by Russian analyst Jason Corcoran. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Uh, Jason, I want to come to you first because Alexei Navalny, the leader of the main Russian opposition, you have interviewed him before. Um, take us through who he was, uh, just why he was behind bars and your impression of him um, while talking to him. Claire, I first met Alexei in 2011, and he was starting off as a shareholder activist, uh, exposing wholesale Olympian levels of corruption in Russian state companies. He was trained as a lawyer, and he had been active in a marginal liberal party called Yablaka, but he was dissatisfied with, with, their, with their ability to mount a serious challenge to Putin and it was through his shareholder activism that he made waves. He discovered uh, corruption at Transneft, an oil pipeline uh, monopoly operator in the region of four billion. This shocked and electrified uh, a new generation of Russians who he brought out in the streets. And I was with him in 2011 when he brought 100,000 Russians, mainly young people who had lived and grown up under Putin uh, to protest against rigged parliamentary elections. This was, uh, this we hadn't seen protests like this since the fall of the Soviet Union. And there was a real sense in Moscow that things could change 
and that people were no longer afraid of being denounced or disappeared or sent to the gulag. Okay, so that was that was hugely significant at the time that Alexei Navalny um, did that. He did leave the country. Then uh, he received treatment um, for for poisoning, and on coming back, then he was arrested uh, to bring us to to where we are now. In that he was found dead, and again allegations of being poisoned. Um, as we know it, no sign yet of his body. Russian authorities are are holding his body right now. What has been the response in Russia to his death? Because from seeing reaction online and elsewhere, it seems to be one of shock that this would have happened. People are reeling from it, despite threats to his life before. Mm. Uh, on a personal level, of somebody who has known Alexei and his family somewhat, uh, I mean, I was, I was, I felt it was a punch in the gut that this could happen because we had this idea that he was. Uh, unkillable, that he was superhuman, that he'd survived Novichok and he'd come back to Russia. And I mean, I, for the, I thought like he could be Russia's Mandela, that he could lead Russia to a, a new democratic future. But unfortunately, he was cut down and uh, very, his life was taken to 47. And that's the same age that Vladimir Putin was when he entered the Kremlin. Um, so people, relatives of, of ours uh, are, are in shock but they're, they're afraid. Again, the fear has come back, the fear, the repression, uh, and the fear that you could end up like Alexei and uh, be banished to uh, Putin's gulag archipelago again. Uh, and yet, uh, Jennifer, to bring you in on this, we had Alexei Navalny's wife, Yulia, mm. um, speaking before EU leaders today, uh, speaking out in a YouTube video prior to that, mm -hmm. saying her husband has been killed. He died in a prison colony after three years of torment and torture. Um, I mean, incredibly brave for her to do so. Um, you would wonder, is there a target on her back? Um, certainly. And I'm, I, when the news broke and it wasn't even officially confirmed, I heard her speak to the Munich security conference. I was in the room. And she spoke so stoically. Um, and this was just moments after the news broke. And she very strongly said that uh, Russia, Putin, naming him, will be held accountable. Um, Russia will see change and that she would be carrying on um, the legacy of uh, the man she loved. And so giving such a strong statement and with and also to the to the global leaders of the world it's not like she was saying this in in a in a small room uh, it certainly it certainly showed that she was not going to give up so a target certainly yeah and we also heard the eu foreign policy chief joseph borrell saying he believed that um, alexei navalny was slowly murdered in a mm. russian jail by putin's regime and the EU and the US have both said they will consider further sanctions on Russia. Um, and other countries like Finland are summoning their Russian ambassadors. You know, what further, I suppose, political and economic ramifications could there be for Russia, you know, given what's already happened in Ukraine and the sanctions that have been imposed on them to date? What could possibly happen now? I don't, uh, from a professional opinion, I don't think, um, while further sanctions are a step... I think you're very right to to assume what could this possibly do to to press Putin any mm. any further. We we must note that Putin is intent on remaining in charge 
as a leader, uh, we have elections in, I say we, uh, Russia has elections uh, within uh, a month. And Putin wants to be remembered, his legacy, as this, this man with his invasion of Ukraine, as this man who brought back the old Russia, who gained back the territory. But we're really seeing um, him losing this legacy. And uh, just as we saw the history books writing that Russia had to get out of Stalinism, we're, I really think that we're going to see the history books saying uh, Russia had to get out of Putinism. And so uh, that's where his legacy is going, and that is not what he uh, wants to happen. Um, Sarah, we're, we saw there at EU level that there, there have been statements made that Tornishta, um also in Brussels today. What did he have to say? He basically kind of said that this is really a sign that the Western world really needs to get behind Ukraine, rally behind Ukraine. And also, we very rightly pointed out that this is a reminder of the conflict that is going on there and the real oppression that is happening in Russia. You know, I, we, I was only mentioned a couple of minutes ago, but coming into 2024 in the, the political landscape, this was being seen as the year of elections worldwide. Russia will take to the polls next month, about this this week, next month. Um, and it's, it's just kind of funny. It's actually kind of astounding because while we're sitting here talking about the TV licence fee as an election issue. You know, Russia, 400 Russians were in, like were imprisoned over the weekend just for expressing their sympathies to Alexei Navalny's family. Um, it's really quite shocking. And I think the Tonshta did put it quite well in saying that this is just a reminder of everything that is going on. There's so much tragedy right now between Rafa, Ukraine, all parts of the world. But this really should stop everyone in their tracks. Yeah. Um, Jason, to bring you in again, and we're talking about like the, the impact potentially of economic sanctions on Russia. I mean, is it politically damaging for Putin what's happened, um, what's happened to Navalny? Uh, how will this play out in Russia politically? I think it's uh, very delegitimizes his elections, which are happening in four weeks. But, you know, we saw in February 2015... Uh, the killing of Boris Nemtsov, who was an opposition figure who was very close to Alexei Navalny. So I, I'm not convinced that uh, Putin... Uh, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death at this penal colony in the Arctic Circle. But did he order the killing uh, on Friday? I'm not convinced, because in 2015, Boris Nemtsov uh, was shot dead just yards from the Kremlin's walls. And Putin was spooked, and he went missing for two weeks afterwards. And there was rumours he was in Switzerland getting Botox or that he was sick or whatever. So this could simply have been ordered or taken out on initiative of one of the turbo-nationalists or ultra-hawks within the Politburo because we've seen infighting. And we saw it last year when Yevgeny Prigozhin mounted a challenge, a putsch against Putin and was marching on, on Moscow. So uh, the, the system is cracking for within, within the facade as well. Uh, and just to ask you, uh, Jason, obviously Alexei Navalny had huge political ambition and he had ideas of becoming president of Russia. What do you think um, uh, Russia would have looked like under his governance? Like his politics, he, he, he didn't speak out on, on, on Ukraine. Um, and politically, you know, how different was he to Vladimir Putin? I think in... I first got to know Alexei... He wasn't too far removed from where Putin was. At the time, Putin was had a balance within the Politburo. 
liberals, the, uh, the liberal economists and the hawks. And over time, he drifted towards the right. And when Alexei Navalny was starting out, with the nationalists and he even marched with the ultra-nationalists who, who, who made Hitler salutes. And in 2014, he had a very... He did not uh, say that Crimea shouldn't have been annexed since that Ukraine's borders. So he, he's... And I think, you know, Yulia Navalny has played a big part in that. She's helped craft his okay. speeches. J and she's helping make him a better leader. All right. Okay. Uh, Jason, I'm sorry, the line is just breaking up um, there, so we will have to leave it there for now. But many thanks um, to Jason for joining us and bringing us his insights on that story. Uh, my thanks also to Sarah McGuinness. And uh, coming up next, though, the US is proposing a draft resolution calling for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. Jennifer is staying on with me. We'll have the very latest after these. Welcome back. Fears continue to mount that Israel is planning a ground invasion of the overcrowded city of Rafah, which is now home to over a million Gazans. Well, earlier this evening, it was revealed that a proposed draft United States UN Security Council resolution would support a temporary ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza conflict. The draft resolution details how harmful a ground offensive would be on civilians in Gaza, as well as the impact that it would have on regional peace and security. Well, Oxford University law lecturer Jennifer Cassidy has stayed on with me. And we're also joined by foreign correspondent Hannah McCarthy. Hannah, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first on what Israel has been saying in recent days, we had Benny Gantz, a senior member of the Israeli War Cabinet, saying if hostages haven't been released by Ramadan, um, citing this date around March 10th, that a ground invasion will occur. Um, what do you, and then we, we are also hearing uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu brushing off growing calls to halt this military offensive and he's vowed to finish the job. So what do you think Israeli uh, leaders are doing right now, seeing as we have a sort of a deadline now set around March 10th and an inflammatory one at that? So Benny Gantz's statement is definitely inflammatory. It's using the start of the Muslim uh, month of Ramadan as this deadline to launch um, extended military operation into Rafah. Incredibly inflammatory, very provocative to other Arab states, other Palestinians in the West Bank and Israel. At the same time, I think it's interesting because on one hand, it's, you know, tough man language, but it does give three weeks, which it can be a long time for negotiations and things to move in the background. So, I mean, Benny Gantz is uh, someone who is seen as a centrist figure. He's seen as a, a possible replacement for uh, Netanyahu. And I actually think it could be actually about buying more time behind the scenes for negotiations. But again, Ramadan is seen as a volatile period, a time when tensions rise. Uh, we're already hearing about restrictions around access for not just Palestinians from the West Bank, but Arab-Israeli citizens uh, in terms of their access to Al-Aqsa Mosque during uh, What's Ramadan. What's happening there outside of Gaza? Because we are hearing about these religious restrictions that are being imposed, obviously something that's highly inflammatory and creating more tension in the region. For, for not just Palestinians, but 
you know, across the Arab world. Uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, also known as the uh, Temple Mount to Jewish people, it's, it's an important religious site for both Jewish people and Muslims. Uh, but it's a red line for many Muslims around the world, world how uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque is treated uh, and the access that is provided to Muslim worshippers, particularly during Ramadan. And what we're seeing is that there have been age restrictions. We don't know the exact ages. They're usually, you know, 18 to 45 uh, males will not be allowed to enter Al-Aqsa Mosque. And the fact that they're extending it to uh, Arabs or Palestinian citizens of uh, Israel, I, I mean, that's, that's something new. That's a new development. Um, we're also hearing, Jennifer, the latest from the EU is that all EU countries except Hungary have joined a call for an immediate humanitarian pause. Yes. Um, they're using that word pause again, but yes. uh, there, there does seem to be ramped up efforts by the EU to see some sort of pause in what has been... We're, we're, like, we're talking about the ground offensive, yep. of course, in Rafa, yep. but we're seeing airstrikes um, daily and the bombardment continuing on the people of Gaza as well, aren't we? So what's likely, uh, I suppose, to come from from that European call? Well, you know, I, I welcome the call. We all welcome the call. But regarding all this this diplomatic talk and this diplomatic negotiation, as a former, former diplomat myself, I know how slow and arduous these negotiations are. I think what people and the diplomats need to realise is that this situation is so urgent. And we talk about the three weeks before March the 10th. At that time, who knows how many Gazans will still be alive. We have systematic starvation happening in Gaza. We have still uh, sniper fire, carpet bombings. And so when people are talking about these long-term strategies or what can happen in, in three weeks, you know, for me, that's somewhat futile when... We, this show is over. We will have already, you know, 20, 30 deaths of, of Palestinians. And so this is happening so immediate. So the short term needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed now. So while I welcome the EU uh, statements, this, these actions are need to be immediate and they need, need to be stopped. So all this, this pondering on pause or pauses, you know, for me is, is, is extremely futile and, and not helping anyone on the ground who is suffering in this immediate moment. OK, of course, um, what everyone says about this situation, Hannah, is that the US is the power player here and it's what they do that makes all the difference. Um, what we're hearing this evening is that the United States has drafted a United Nations Security Council resolution and that they will be calling in that draft resolution for a temporary ceasefire in the Gaza Strip as soon as practical. And they will also be opposing an Israeli ground offensive on the southern city of Rafah. This is a big change in what people have expected to see from the US uh, in how they've acted uh, on the UN Security Council. Uh, in a UN Security Council resolution in December, for example, they actually abstained along with Russia over a UN resolution that, that said that aid must be facilitated. Uh, we're now at this point in February where one in four Palestinians are you know, hungry, facing starvation. We know that aid is not getting through. I've spoken to UN officials who've been in vehicles that have been shot at while going on aid deliveries to northern Gaza. So we've gone from this perspective where they abstained from a, a resolution that obviously has not been respected to a point where they've said we're calling for what you know is a ceasefire, at least a temporary one. Uh, they haven't used the same language as Algeria. Uh, Algeria drafted a resolution two weeks before. The uh, US ambassador to the UN was on record saying they would not accept it. So obviously something's been going on in the, back in the background. And I think the US is 
you know, feeling a certain necessity to call, to answer these charges of hypocrisy. You know, why is it not calling uh, for a ceasefire? And it's definitely feeling more pressure domestically, uh, which I think we're starting to see, you know, an impact in how it behaves in this conflict. Yeah, and, and how that's uh, playing out politically as well, of course, in an election year in the US and how much pressure uh, perhaps they feel they are under. Also interesting that Benny Gantz was speaking in front of a, a Jewish lobby in the US when he made those comments about um, a deadline of Ramadan. Um, but to come to you, Jennifer, on this, I mean, the UN, Algeria was trying to push for um, a resolution for tomorrow in front of the UN Security yep. Council, and we didn't know how that was going to play out. Um, this move would appear to be significant by the US. However, we don't know exactly, you know, when... Uh, this draft resolution will be put to a vote by the 15-member council. Exactly. And, and when we say 15-member council, we know actually it's only the five that matter, the, 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 the permanent five that ha have mm -hmm. the power of the veto. So Algeria's, will be put to, Algeria's resolution will be put to tomorrow regarding the, the ceasefire. And um, as Hannah rightly pointed out, uh, the US ambassador has stated that they will be vetoing this. Now, we don't know the exact text. They're calling for a ceasefire, but I'm sure there are numerous caveats. Um, and regarding what I heard in the Munich Security Conference from the Qatari foreign minister, Saudi foreign minister, and the Egyptian foreign minister, uh, the talks between uh, the US, Israel, and Hamas regarding these intricate issues of hostages, which is at the core, the exchange of Palestinian hostages and the exchange of Israeli hostages, this has completely broken down. So if we see text in this resolution regarding just one exchange of hostages, then um, I'm, I don't know if, it, if it's uh, going to be successful on the ground uh, regarding um, how Hamas will... Um, it. It's interesting as well that the hostages uh, issue was brought up by uh, Benny Gantz in this regard, but that Benjamin Netanyahu is, is still pushing for this. It would appear pushing for this ground invasion regardless um, of deals done. I mean, how, how important is this? You know, you, you've been in, in, in Israel, Hannah. Um, for the public, um, how important is it for their... For, for the, and, and what is more important for them, to see the release of hostages, um, to see an end to what's happening now, or the continuing um, action that's taking place in, in Gaza with the death of thousands of people? I would say those Israelis who have taken to the streets en masse for um, the return of the hostages and now, you know, early elections or, you know, the exiting of Netanyahu, I would say they far outstripped the numbers who've taken to the streets to end uh, the war in Gaza. It's primarily, the, the main public sentiment is unifying around the return of the hostages. Uh, so that will definitely support, you know, th there'll be public support for a temporary ceasefire if it gets the hostages home. But there's not necessarily public support for a long-term cessation of hostilities unless that is properly sold by the Israeli government as a way to security, which it isn't. People are terrified about going back to their villages around the Gaza border because of how successful the Israeli you know, narrative around fear uh, of a Palestinian state and a, another Palestinian attack has been. Yeah, I would wonder as well what um, what people in Israel are seeing about what's happening in Gaza as well, Jennifer. Like we are seeing um, the images day out, day in, day out, um, beamed to us. But you know how how it is being reported there. 
and yeah. how it is being well, yeah, I, I uh, might, uh, perceived there. Yeah, well, I myself lived in Ramallah for a, a number of months and, and then also also Israel. And just regarding the news and and what the information that you receive is, you know, just completely bipolar. Um, bipolar worlds apart. So the news that is being um, brought into Israel is everything that they have been fed and from from youth. So it's all bringing into that narrative of of the Holy Land, the chosen people. And so I think that's the way it's going to remain for a while. All right. Thank you both. And thanks to all my guests tonight, to Jennifer, to Hannah and all our panellists. From all the late team here, good night. Do ticker. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.